Good morning. Yes, my name is Marshall Shelley, and uh, those of us who are baseball fans know that this was uh, opening week of the profession the, of Major League Baseball. Even though it uh, took a while here in Chicago for, uh, in fact, it still hasn't quite felt like uh, the beginning of baseball season. But at Parkview, that means that this week it's time for a relief pitcher. Our starting our starting preacher is. Uh, uh, off in Washington, D.C. with a number of the staff, and uh, they are meeting with the uh, International Justice Mission, one of our partners that uh, that we work with. Those of you who've been around a while know that IJM, International Justice Mission, uh, has an extensive ministry freeing people from slavery. Yes, there is, uh, there is a lot of slavery going on these days, people being uh, put into pretty brutal conditions making bricks in parts of the world, in the sex trade in other parts of the world. And we are working with International Justice Mission to use the law, to use investigators, to use uh, the legal system to free people from uh, from slavery. And so uh, my wife, Susan, is part of the Parkview delegation that's uh, there and got a call from her last night. And she said that uh, they spent most of yesterday in groups finding out what uh, IJM was doing in different parts of the world and praying for those uh, different parts of the world and the different strategies required. And they're going to be coming back with greater uh, understanding of ways that Parkview can be involved in the days ahead. So uh, that's where uh, that's where our starting preacher is, and so that's why you have a relief preacher today. But that also leads into the subject of the uh, of the sermon today. For we, we talk a lot about God as a as a God of grace around here. And boy, that is true. Grace is life transforming and the grace of God is absolutely essential. And that is half the story of God's goodness. If I could put the sermon in three sentences, in three words today, it would be this. God is good. And what is good? Well, it means that God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's grace. But God is also going to set right the things that are not right. That's called justice. God is a God of grace and he's a God of justice, and that's the sermon today. Okay, we can close. No, actually, what I'd like to do is to explore that because grace and justice are sort of like um, Mentos and Diet Coke. They're great individually. You put them together, and it's sort of a, a combustible, uh, combustible combination. So today we're going to be looking at grace and justice and how those two things together mean that God is good. What I'd like to do is, is to look at a uh, story of, uh, in the Bible that Jesus told. It shows that the way Jesus understands justice is a little different from the way that the people in his day understood justice. Jesus talked about something called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is where God's perfect justice is administered. Here on earth, we have approximate human efforts to sort of achieve justice, and I am very grateful. I know there are people at Parkview who are, who are involved in the, uh, in the justice system, and thank God for you. We have lawyers. We have police officers. We have paralegals. We have investigators. Many of you have done jury duty. Thank you for uh, those of you who are contributing to the judicial system in that way. We have people involved in the corrections, probation. We have those who help refugees and immigrants with legal issues. Um, on another level, there are many who are uh, involved with the various uh, branches of the military. That's, that's justice at a, at a different level. We also have accountants and fact checkers and auditors and home inspectors. And that's just part of the list. Even umpires and referees 
and parents in other, and are some, some of those in other settings who teach right from wrong. Teaching right from wrong is part of justice, and it's at the heart of God, and it's part of his goodness. Those of you who are involved in teaching justice and teaching right and wrong and administering it in various ways, God has placed you there for a reason to help bring God's justice into, into being here uh, on planet Earth. And I thank you for that. And God is a part of what uh, God is, God's calling on your life is to administer justice well. But justice is an interesting thing, at least on the human level. Human justice has a tendency to drift. Institutions can become corrupt. People can be bought off. People have a nat natural selfish tendency. And justice can veer. And one of the things that God has called us to do as Christians is to make sure that we speak out for justice even when the laws don't support it, even when even sometimes there are sometimes just because something is legal doesn't make it right. And we are called to do and work for what is right and for what is just, regardless of what the system that we are in is saying. Now, this is where things get really dicey. Let me tell a story that uh, sort of indicates a little bit about this tension that we feel sometimes between grace and justice. For, for more than 10 years, I played softball at various levels at Ackerman Park here, just uh, surrounding, surrounding Parkview. I played men's slow pitch. I coached t-ball, coach pitch, fast pitch, slow pitch. I had two, two daughters and a son who were involved with uh, um, softball or baseball at various levels. I still remember the day, this was, this was in... Uh, an early, this was the first year of kid pitch, one of the leagues I was coaching, and one of the girls, it was a girls, girls team, went up to bat about the second game of the year, and she stood there, took her stance, pitcher wound up, threw a strike, strike one, the umpire said, and Amy just stood there and watched. Pitcher wound up, threw a second pitch, strike two, the umpire said, pitcher wound up, threw again, strike three, the umpire said, you're out. Amy immediately said, that's not fair. How did you know? Well, because that is a common, uh, common response. And Amy came back to the bench and she was stomping around saying, that's not fair. I didn't like any of those pitches. <laughs> now, I'm trying to administer justice and grace at the same time in that situation. What do you say to Amy when she comes back having watched three perfectly good, or at least within the realm of the strike zone, uh, pitches and came come back saying that's not fair. I didn't know I was making it up as I went along. I said, well, Amy, actually, what wouldn't have been fair is if we'd given you four, five, or six of those kind of pitches. The grace is the fact that you are on the team and that you get to play. Uh, justice is that you only get three strikes. Well, that's that's part of what uh, what we're about here today is to take a look at how does Jesus define the strike zone in the kingdom of God. What is, what is right and what is acceptable and unacceptable in, uh, in the eyes of Jesus, our Savior and Lord? We're going to take a look at a, a, a story that Jesus told, which will probably make you squirm. It sure makes me squirm, but this will give us eyes to see how he's calling the strike zone. It's um, Luke chapter 14. It's on page one, uh, 1047 on the, in the Bibles in the uh, racks in front of you there. And before we get to the uh, first... first verse 16, where we're going to read together. Let me just set the stage here a little bit. Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee. That's a religious big shot. And the scripture says he was being carefully watched. 
uh, they were looking to see how Jesus would respond to some of the things that were going on. But Jesus was also watching them very carefully, those there. And one of the things he noticed was how people were jockeying for the prime positions at the uh, at prime seats at the table. And uh, after watching the dynamics and the spirit of the event, Jesus observes in verse 11, All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, that statement of Jesus tells us something about the people that he was watching, that there were a lot of people scrambling to assert their own position. But we learn, also learned something about God, that that's not the game he's playing. Scrambling to make yourself look better than others is not, is not what he's about. In fact, that kind of pride leads to humiliation in, uh, in God's kingdom, and humility leads to exaltation. That's part of God's justice system. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. Now, is that telling us that we don't ever need to invite our family over to eat? Or, Well, some of you may be thinking, Ah, I've got the excuse I've been looking for. No. <laughs> what he's saying is that don't always just invite people who can reciprocate and pay you back. In God's kingdom... Being able to do things without ever expecting repayment is what God is looking for. That is part of God's justice. Selfless generosity is what God, God's kingdom runs on. That's the, that's the currency of the realm. Suffering love, sacrificial service is, is what Jesus is after. And that was what was in very short supply at the dinner table in the Pharisee's house. One of those at the table heard Jesus mention these things, and he said, Blessed is he who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And that was, that was the assumption that uh, when, when we finally get to God's kingdom, when the Messiah comes, all will be well because things will be one big party. And you know what? Jesus agreed with that. Jesus said, It's true. The kingdom of God is like a feast. It's like a marriage supper. It is a, it is a tremendous feast. In fact, all of those at the table would have been familiar with the description of the even greater party that God himself will throw for his people one day in Isaiah 25. They would have had, this is the passage they probably would have had running through their minds when Jesus was making these, telling this story about uh, the feast. Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. What's a shroud? It's a death garment. It's what you wrap a, uh, it's wrap a body in in the first century before you put it in a tomb. He said he will destroy that shroud, the sheet that covers all nations, that he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. On that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is indeed a feast to celebrate. That is, uh, that is an indication of God's goodness. It is a joyful celebration. The uh, sin and death and pain, all of those things are going to be eliminated forever. But when this guy said, yeah, happy are us who get to eat at that feast, Jesus said, huh, not so fast. Let me tell you a story. And this is, 
this is where Jesus' understanding of justice becomes just, it becomes evident that it's just a little different from those who were sitting at that dinner to whom he told this story. Because he, the kingdom of God is not just something that's out there in the future, it begins here and now. And that's something that the, uh, the people at that table didn't have a clue of. Here's the, uh, here's the story. Jesus said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. We just need to pause there for a second. In the first century, an invitation was twofold. Some of you have gotten wedding invitations, a save-the-date invitation that comes early. It says, you know, we're, we're going to get married. It's going to be on August 5th. Save the date. And at that time, they expected people to let them know if they would be able to, to come or not on that date. Then later, the second part of the invitation, when the day actually arrived and the calf had, had been killed, the fatted calf had been killed, or the food was prepared, then word would come, all is now ready, party's about to begin. Well, that's the, uh, that's the backstory to this. But when that second invitation saying, now, the party's, the party's ready to begin, they all alike began to make excuses. Earlier on, they'd accepted the first invitation, but now they're not showing up. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another one said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited and found excuses not to come will get a taste of my banquet. Our response is, that's not fair, or that's justice in God's kingdom. Before we go on, let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that uh, Jesus' story is easy to misunderstand. Lord, I pray that you will give us ears to hear and the ability to understand so that we may know what your kingdom is like so that we may be able to participate now in anticipation of it coming in its fullness in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray this. You know that uh, according to recent polls, more than 80% of Americans believe in heaven. That's most of the population. But when asked how you get in, 54% say by being a good person. Uh, when asked to describe it, 43% suggest that uh, we'll be playing harps, and 36% think that we will have halos. Overall, however, most people, even when, even when they believe in it, can't offer any detailed explanation of what it's going to be like, what's what's appreciated there and what's not appreciated, what's acceptable there and what's not acceptable there. Now, some of us, uh, I must confess, when I wonder about it, I ask the four, probably the four basic questions that you ask about heaven as well. Will I still be overweight in heaven? Uh, will I be the age I am now or my ideal age? Will I see and recognize loved ones? And finally and most importantly, will I be able to fly? We all, uh, we all speculate about what that, uh, what that day will, will be like. And I think part of the reason some of us have a hard time looking forward to heaven is because we know so little about it. 
I'm not able to uh, go into great detail about heaven. I've not been there. I realize some people have been there and have come back and written books about it, but uh, I've, I've not been able to have that experience yet. But Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God, which is, which is a little broader definition of, of heaven. Heaven is the kingdom of God then, but we are part of the kingdom of God now, and Jesus wants us to be a part of that experience now. He says, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who'd been invited, come for everything is ready. Jesus does portray the kingdom of God as a feast, as a party, as a banquet. What's that tell you about God? Well, it tells you that he encourages celebration. This is going to be something that is good. This is going to be something where we are together and it's going to be something that, that is good and enjoyable. But it also indicates that it is grace to be able to become a part of that. We have, been, we have been included. That is God's grace note. He has paid the price. He has made the offer. But what Jesus is saying here is that he expects you to show up. It says in verse 18, people that Jesus was talking about, they all alike began to make excuses. This reminds me of a phenomenon we're familiar with here in the Chicago area, something called the blue flu. Sometimes when um, police forces or sheriff's offices, groups that are by law unable to strike, don't like working conditions or things are unsafe or they need a different uh, pay arrangement, uh, they don't strike, but they all get sick on the same day. And there's just a a disproportionate number of people calling in calling in sick. Well, it sort of appears that there is a blue flu epidemic going on in this uh, in this banquet because these excuses start coming in and they're bogus excuses. First man says that he's just bought a field and must uh, inspect it. Now, I'm not an NBA. I'm uh, NBA. I'm not definitely not in the NBA. I'm not neither, <laughs> I'm not even a, have an MBA. But nor am I a uh, real estate developer, but it do, I just know that it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy land and then go do the inspection. This guy says, oh, I bought land. I need to go check it out. Well, I'm sorry. That sounds like a bogus excuse, but I think it's an expression of this man's self-sufficiency. Times are good. Investments are growing. I'm buying land. I'm a successful person. I don't have time for your party. The second, uh, likewise, says he's just bought five pairs of oxen and must try them out. Now, from... Doing a little background research, this guy must have had quite a spread because one or two yoke of oxen would have been plenty for a small farm. This man bought five. And the thing about yoke, about oxen, they come in yokes and you have to pair them so that they're of roughly equal pulling power. Otherwise, they're just going to be pulling in circles as the stronger one pulls faster than the slow one. And crop circles. Maybe that's where they came from. Unequally yoked oxen. I never thought about that. No, that's not the point Jesus is making. No, he's saying that you don't buy oxen without them already having been yoked together. And this man had bought five pair of oxen and now is going to test them out and see if they're well yoked. Pretty bogus excuse. The third excuse is also uh, lame. Guest says he's just gotten married and so uh, he can't come, can't come to the party. Well, it's true in the Old Testament. Husbands were exempt from military duty during the first year of their marriage so that they could focus on their wife and establish a family. But that doesn't mean you can't go to a party. When he accepted the initial invitation, he would have known if 
something specific was happening this day that was going to prevent him from coming to the party, but uh, that was the time to politely decline. But to back out at the last minute like this is an insult. The point of this is Jesus is saying there were there have been a lot of people who've been told about the kingdom of God, and they say they nod their heads, but inside there is no desire to actually show up. Jesus was telling this story to religious people who considered themselves God's chosen people, assuming that they were on the original guest list, and they had it made. Jesus was saying that being invited is a different thing from actually showing up. There's a grace element here, and there's a justice element. And when he's rejected by those he's invited, he will find others who are happy to show up. That's only fair. It's interesting that the guest list in Jesus' story is identical to the list that he told the Pharisee that he should have invited to the, uh, the dinner that Jesus was invited to. Those who could not repay. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Well, what do we see in this story, we see a couple of things. Number one, we see rejection. The invitation has been sent, and Jesus said, yes, it's true. Some people, either passively or aggressively, will reject the invitation. John uh, chapter 1, verse 11 says this, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He has given life. The life simply must be received. But some reject that, that offer. Secondly, there are varying excuses. I just pointed out that the excuses given in the story were pretty lame excuses. They were bogus. We may, some of us too, may be able to convince ourselves that what we're doing is so much more important than what uh, God has invited us to. We have our own agendas, and that's what's occupying our time, and we really don't have uh, any emotional energy or any uh, intention of paying attention to God. But I'm afraid that uh, all too often those excuses are uh, bogus and an insult to God. He's the host. He's the master of the house. And it's by his mercy that we've been invited. The first group of people felt that they were so good and self-sufficient that they didn't need to accept the invitation. And there are lots of people today who feel that way, that I'm fine without God, or I've got my own understanding of things. I don't need to listen to what God says. Who needs to respond to him? I'm busy with my own agenda. I have my own plans, and God's not a part of it. There's a second group of people, however, who felt that they were so bad that they couldn't eat. It's interesting that in the story there, Jesus says to go out into the highways and byways and compel those who don't feel good enough to come to the feast. And by compel, that word doesn't mean send out the police and take hostages and bring them forcibly to the, uh, to the banquet. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. But compel them means don't take no for an answer. In that, uh, in that day, the people who did not expect to get invitations, if they had been invited, probably would have said, me? You don't mean me. No, I've never been to a, invited to a party like that in my life. I, I don't think I qualify. And Jesus is saying, no, the master says, don't let people take no, don't let people give you a no answer. So you say, no, really, the master wants you at his, uh, at his feast. It's like when you go to a, uh, a meal and somebody says, you know, says, would you like, uh, you know, like seconds on uh, mashed potatoes? Oh, no, no, I really couldn't. Oh, please, I insist. Well, okay, since you insist, absolutely, and you take more mashed potatoes and gravy. This is what he's saying. Please make sure that people know that they really are invited. Go the extra, 
the second mile, the third mile, to see that they come. There is another little wrinkle here, however, that gives us a glimpse at what God's justice is in the kingdom of God. And this comes from the parallel passage in Matthew 22, where Jesus tells this story. But Matthew includes a detail that Luke uh, does not include. Jesus has removed the the uh, second excuse that uh, you know, people think they're too bad to be admitted into uh, God's feast, but uh, he insists he he goes the extra mile, offers that grace. So, but then but then this happens in Matthew 22. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked. How did you get in here without wedding clothes, my friend? The man was speechless. Now I need to pause here and say the implication is that the master provides the clothing for those who don't have it. Sort of a no shoes, no shirt, no service. No, excuse me, back, backwards. No shirt, no shoes, no service kind of thing. You're welcome to come. We will provide what you need, but please wear appropriate apparel. This guy accepted the invitation, but did not put on the clothes that the master had provided. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this can be really confusing. And, and if you're like me, you're squirming right now because, wait a minute, isn't that inconsistent with what we know in other parts of Scripture? And you would be right. If, if Jesus was talking about the things that hang in our closet that we put on. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, have you not discriminated amongst yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? That's what God thinks of people who show favoritism or partiality based on the designer labels on your clothing. That's not what Jesus is talking about in his story. There are other kinds of clothing than the things that hang in your closet. There is inappropriate dress, and we let me just show a couple of verses that uh, show inappropriate dress of the type that Jesus is talking about. Psalm 73 talks about those who have pride as their necklace and people who clothe themselves in violence. Jesus is talking about something much more important and significant than the, than the cotton or wool or synthetic fabrics that you happen to have on your back. There is also being well-dressed. We see that in the book of Job. Job says, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I took up the case of the stranger. What was Job wearing? He was wearing generous service. He was wearing, he was wearing a sense of what was right and doing what was right and uh, and good. Romans 13 says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, but clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. There are those who clothe themselves in what can I get for myself right now, and there are those who clothe themselves in what does God want? What are God's values, and how can I put those on? Are any of us perfect at this? No, we fail regularly. But what is the desire of our heart? What do we want to be true of us? Jesus is saying there is a difference here. An old saying, a person wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. Some people clothe 
themselves in themselves and become a very small package. And that is clothing that is not appropriate for the kingdom of God. But when we clothe ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Well, as we celebrated last week, that means that Jesus heals. He reconciles. We are to be in the business of healing and reconciliation. He welcomes the outcast and the brokenhearted. He points people to the kingdom of God, that invisible kingdom for now of those who recognize that Jesus is Lord and live their lives in allegiance to Christ. And as we celebrated that last week, it means that we clothe ourselves in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know that the most lasting things come out of people who are willing to die so that they can be resurrected. People who are willing to invest their life in something larger than themselves and will be raised to newness of life. Jesus won us that victory on the cross, which we could not have accomplished on our own. Resurrection is that key intersection of God's grace and God's justice. One author I read this past week put it this way, The death of Jesus involved taking the sin of all humanity upon himself. At the moment of his death, Jesus carried the weight of the sins of the world. Every rape, every murder, every lie, every betrayal, every adulterous relationship, every act of child abuse, the hunger pangs from every famine, every winter chill from homelessness, every addiction, the sordid world of pornography, the chains of slavery. When he died, he carried the evil of terrorism and genocide, the Nazi Holocaust and the mass killings of Darfur. In a single, blazing, soul-wrenching moment, the sins of the world were taken upon his shoulders. He carried their stain. He absorbed their weight, their pain, their evil, their darkness. He became that sin. He died for those sins. Pause. Three days. And he rose. That is the victory. Jesus carried that sin to death, and he rose again. South African Bishop Desmond Tutu, who, again, is a man who probably epitomizes for me that intersection of grace and, and truth about as well as any. He, he chaired the... Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, where, where the guerrillas who fought against apartheid and the security uh, forces that enforced apartheid and committed acts of terrorism on each other, he sat down with both of those, and in his presence, people on both sides commit, confessed the evil that they had done and confessed their sins and sought reconciliation. One of the most amazing, uh, amazing acts of truth and reconciliation that uh, the world has known. Desmond Tutu put it this way, For us who are Christians, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive that love is stronger than hate, that life is stronger than death, that light is stronger than darkness, that laughter and joy and compassion and gentleness and truth, all these are so much stronger than their ghastly counterparts. Well, that is true, and Desmond Tutu offered us an example of living out the death and resurrection of Jesus in a world that desperately needs justice and grace. N.T. Wright, uh, a theologian that uh, is very close to C.S. Lewis in my, uh, in my estimation, uh, N.T. Wright still living, lives in England, writes uh, frequently, put, uh, put, that, put it this way in his book, Evil and the Justice of God. He said, the word judgment carries negative overtones for many people today. We need to remind ourselves that God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned for, 
throughout the Bible causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that a day will come when the wicked are put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment and justice. Well, there are times when human justice is perverted or corrupted or times when, it, when what's legal just isn't right. God is good, and he wants us to be people of his kingdom. His judgments are just, and his justice is good, and God will do what is right, even though sometimes we must wait for that justice to be put out. I mentioned I'm a, uh, I'm a baseball fan and was following opening day this past week. I'm also a history fan, and uh, those of you who are history fans probably know that uh, 148 years ago this week, uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater. Some of you have seen the recent movie Lincoln, which, uh, which highlights his uh, the efforts in the last uh, two months of his life to work for the uh, passage of the 13th Amendment, which uh, abolished slavery. In the movie, the words I'm about to read are mentioned only briefly. But if you visited Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., you see it there in the, uh, in the slide, you've seen these words engraved in marble almost six inches tall. You see there in the upper right the, uh, his second inaugural address where he offers some of the most profound words about God's justice and God's judgment that have been uh, written in American history. He closes his uh, description of this terrible civil war in his second inaugural address with these comments about the justice of God. Neither party, neither North nor South, expected the war for the war, the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. But both North and South read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's, that's the slaves, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, from Psalm 19. Here Lincoln quotes a Bible verse that points out that God is just, and he's going to do what's right, even if we must wait 250 years. But then Lincoln closes with famous words that describe a very Christ-like application of the intersection of justice and grace. With malice toward none, with charity or love for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, and do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That's justice and that's grace combined with malice toward none and love or charity for all. That's the phrase most often quoted from this address. He calls us to seek what is right and do it with the attitude and the actions of love. Abraham Lincoln rested his perspective on the fact that at times God judges evil and his ways are sometimes severe, but he's good. In the tramping out of justice, his grace shows through and death and injustice do not have the final word. God brings resurrection, new life. Because he is a good God, a God of grace and a God of justice, it's appropriate that we respond to God's amazing 
grace and amazing justice by participating in the Lord's Supper, which originally took place in conjunction with his death and in anticipation of his resurrection. 